And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. This uh, this year marks the publication of a new commentary on the Gospel of Luke. It's part of the Catholic Commentary and Sacred Scripture series that we've discussed on this program many times before. This uh, commentary on the Gospel of Luke is written by uh, Father Pablo Gadenz. He is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Immaculate Conception Seminary uh, School of Theology at Seton Hall University. And Father, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks so much to be on the. Uh, I'm happy to be on the show with you, Al. The uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, in these series, that w- in which we take a look at particular biblical books, one of the objectives is to help people understand that the Gospels or the prophets or whoever, whatever book we're looking at. Uh, is is a literary whole. In other words, it's not just a string of uh, wise sayings connected together, but there's a basic narrative that lies behind this gospel. And I think for many Catholics, their their uh, familiarity with sacred scripture takes place in the liturgy, in which we get these you know small short readings. Um, but uh, the important thing, uh, what I'm trying to bring out in these interviews, is that there's a there's an architecture to something like the Gospel of Luke. Is that, am I right on this? That's correct, Al. And indeed, as Catholics, we hear the Gospel proclaimed at Mass, but we only hear small portions, a particular passage. And so it's really important for us to read the narrative of the whole Gospel. So the Gospel of Luke in particular is a, a rather long Gospel, and there are parts of it which we never hear at Mass. And so uh, also, for that reason, we should sit down and, and read through the whole narrative. And in particular, it, when we do so, uh, we're, we become more aware of the themes that yes. run through the whole Gospel. So, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, there are many themes that, that keep occurring again and again. For example, showing that Jesus is at prayer, more so than in the other Gospels. And it's only when we, we read the Gospel all the way through can we then begin to appreciate uh, what each evangelist highlights in his portrait of Jesus, because all the evangelists are giving us a biography of Jesus, but it's selective. They're emphasizing certain aspects. So, for example, Luke emphasizes the title of Savior uh, when he's speaking about Jesus. So there are many things that we can discover, perhaps for the first time, when we sit down and read the Gospel all the way through, and the commentary then would also help to uh, aid in that process of discovery, of deepening our understanding of the Gospel. Very good. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about some brief introductory matters. Uh, Who's Luke, and why do we think this was written by Luke? (laughs) So, well, Luke is a companion, a missionary companion of St. Paul, and the earliest manuscripts of Luke's Gospel already have the name Luke uh, on them. So, for example, there's a papyrus, uh, one of the earliest New Testament manuscripts, Papyrus 75, dated around the year 200, already indicates that this is the work of Luke. And this is the only name by which it was known uh, in the early church, this document, the Gospel of Luke. And so then we might say, well, who was this Luke? Well, there uh, we have an advantage because Luke is mentioned a number of times in Paul's letters. So uh, Paul mentions him, uh, for example, in 2 Timothy, but also in Colossians 4.14. That's perhaps the the most well-known passage where Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. And so that's where we get the tradition that Luke was a doctor. Uh, 
and, and that's why St. Luke is also the patron then of doctors, and that's why we have uh, Catholic doctors have a St. Luke's Guild, etc. Hmm. And so uh, Luke uh, also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, and in the Acts of the Apostles, there are certain sections that are written in the first-person plural, that you know, we traveled here and then we traveled there. And many scholars today, just as uh, early in the early church, believe that this is when Luke was actually accompanying Paul on these missionary journeys. And so he was uh, a first, uh, he was an eyewitness to these events that he's recounting later in the Acts of the Apostles. Wow. Uh, and do we know... Um who he wrote this for. So, who did he write this for? So, uh, more generally, we could say that uh, he's writing this for the churches evangelized by St. Paul. So, Paul, as as we know, did a number of missionary journeys uh, throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, throughout Greece, and then ending up in Rome. And, and most of those churches were uh, Gentile churches, because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we can uh, assume that after evangelizing them, telling them the basic message of Jesus, in order to catechize them further, you wanted to have some document. And so that's where the Gospel of Luke uh, comes in very handy, because indeed in the preface of the Gospel, the first four verses, he, he explains that this is so that you can know the certainty, uh, you can know the, the fuller story also uh, about the things that you've been catechized uh, about, and namely the story about Jesus. Now, uh, besides that broad view associated with Paul's ministry, Luke more specifically directs this to uh, one individual. Uh, so there's a Theophilus who was mentioned at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He's also mentioned at the beginning of Acts. Now, scholars have different opinions as to who this Theophilus might be. The most common opinion is that he was, uh, say, a benefactor, and that, uh, so, in a sense, it's like dedicated to him. Like today, an author might dedicate a work to someone, um, but he's not certainly the only reader of, right. of the Gospel. Uh, there are different opinions as to who Theophilus was. Uh, in any case, uh, the word Theophilus, the name Theophilus, also means uh, one who loves God or who is loved by God, and so spiritually that's, that name has also been interpreted as that the gospel is directed toward anyone who, who loves God and so wants to know more about God. And so, in a sense, we could say that Luke's gospel is also written to all of us mm-hmm. who love God and are loved by God and, and want to know more about God's plan for our salvation. And when do you date it, roughly? So I prefer to date Luke... Uh, early, uh, and in this sense, I follow the more traditional uh, scholars that date Luke's gospel as well as other gospels on the earlier side, and that is in the decade of the 60s oh, of the first okay. century. Because we know that Paul, as well as Peter, were martyred during that decade of the 60s on account of the persecution of the Christians in Rome under the Emperor Nero. And so uh, the the thinking along these lines is that in the Acts of the Apostles, we have Paul wa- uh, end up in Rome, and he's under house arrest, but he hasn't been martyred yet. Right. And so th- the idea is that Luke is writing Acts, and therefore he would have written Luke, the Gospel of Luke before that, while Paul is still alive. Mm-hmm. Meaning, while Paul, during this time of Paul's 
imprisonment in Rome. And, and even there's a tradition that, that Paul was freed uh, from that first imprisonment and then continued for a few more years of missionary activity before then being uh, imprisoned again, leading to his martyrdom. And so there are a number of scholars that would uh, suggest that Luke is writing while Paul is still alive. Uh, that that's the, uh, the the opinion that I that I mentioned in in the introduction to my commentary. I do also mention, however, that the the majority opinion dates Luke's gospel later mm-hmm. to uh, say the decade of the 70s uh, or 80s. Uh, there are some scholars that dated even uh, after that. Um, I think it's important in whatever date you end up coming up with. Important to understand that if, if you want to maintain that that Luke was a companion of Paul, then uh, he can't, you can't date the gospel much later than uh, the 80s of the first century right. because uh, Luke would have been too old by then. So, But I, I think the arguments for dating it early, while Paul is still alive, are, are persuasive, uh, that, Paul, uh, that Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles while Paul is in prison in Rome and that he would have written the Gospel of Luke uh, prior to that. Is it significant that that falls before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? Uh, that's correct. So uh, uh, a major event in that first century was the fall of the temple and the city of Jerusalem uh, when the Romans came in and, and destroyed the temple. And, and that happened in the year 70 A.D. And, uh, of course, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, and in Luke, the description of that destruction of the temple and of the city, uh, for example, in chapter 21, is a little bit more detailed than we might have, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. And so some scholars have have said, oh, this is clear evidence that he wrote after the fact, because he's sort of like reporting on the destruction of Jerusalem in his gospel. But other scholars have said, no, that's really not the case. There is a more detail in Luke compared to Mark, but the, the, the kind of detail, it's actually more similar to prophecies in the Old Testament. Right. And, and then we remember that in the Old Testament, the temple had been destroyed uh, once before that's during right. the, by the Babylonians. And and so Jesus, when he's discussing, uh, predicting the fall of the temple, he's using prophetic language similar to that, for example, of Jeremiah uh, in the Old Testament. And so there's other scholars have, have clearly said that there's no evidence in Luke that he's writing after the fact. And so that's also an important uh, point to establish uh, when, uh, when maintaining an early date, as I do, for, for the Gospel of Luke. Now, is Luke? Um, Luke begins in the in the prologue here. He seems very concerned about getting this right. I mean, <laughs> he he wants an orderly narrative. He wants to make sure it's it's in some way confirmed by those who are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Talk to me about his concern for history. Yes. So Luke is the only uh, evangelist who gives us such a a clear statement of his purpose right at the beginning of the Gospel. Uh, the Gospel of John has a, kind of a statement of purpose uh, toward the end, but Luke has one right here at the beginning. And really, this is a signal to his readers regarding the kind of literature that Luke is writing. Now, here uh, we have the benefit of, the, of a lot of s- scholarship on the Gospels in the last, say, 25 years that have uh, scholars have affirmed that the Gospels are a kind of biography. 
they're ancient biographies. So not like a modern biography that like over a thousand pages tells you everything about a person, but they're similar to ancient biographies. So like biographies are written about generals or philosophers in the ancient world. And of course, biographies are a kind of historical work. Right. And then we also have ancient history works. And we see in uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, in this preface, how uh, Luke makes it clear that he is writing a historical work, namely a biography of Jesus. And that's why he pays attention to eyewitnesses, because those are the ones who can tell you what Jesus right. Father, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break. My guest, Father Pablo Gadens. It's the Gospel of Luke, Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Pablo Gadens. He is uh, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology at Seton Hall University and the author of a recently published commentary, which I heartily recommend to you, the Gospel of Luke. It's part of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series that we've discussed on this program many times before. It's uh, edited. Uh, the general editors are Peter Williamson, Dr. Peter Williamson, and Dr. Mary Healy, uh, friends of ours at uh, Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, Michigan. So it would be a good idea to spend some time getting an overview of the Gospel. Where do I start, for instance, reading the Gospel of Luke is the question we uh, often raised when we take these uh, when we take these overviews of a biblical book, where do I start with, in this case, the Gospel of Luke? And Father uh, uh, Pablo was going over uh, some of the dating of it, who Luke is, the intended audience. Um, we've touched on some of the themes, but we were talking about the historicity of the uh, Gospel uh, in Luke's concern at the very beginning to set out an orderly account which is grounded in the testimony of eyewitnesses and those who are ministers of the Word. Uh, is this concern for history, does that actually run through the early Church? You know, they're not only, I mean, there's some spiritual traditions that are unconcerned about history. Um, they're concerned about spiritual encounters. But it seems to me biblical spirituality has an emphasis on God's actions in space and in time. And so there's a historical emphasis. Does that run through uh, the, the biblical writers generally? Yes, that's something that really characterizes our Judeo-Christian heritage, um, and perhaps in a way that, that, that we, that's not the case for some other religious traditions. But certainly in the, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, there's a great concern for history because of the belief that God actually enters into human history. And so uh, there are events of sal uh, in God's plan of salvation. In the Old Testament, of course, key events such as the Exodus. Uh, but certainly for the Gospels, uh, we have the life of Jesus. And uh, it's becoming more evident to scholars of the last generation that the early Christians paid a lot of attention to historical details about Jesus. So, for example, one of the earliest uh, Christian writers from the second century, a bishop named Papias, whose works we don't have directly, but Eusebius, the church historian, tells us about these works uh, in his uh, fourth century uh, ecclesiastical history. He tells us how Papias, when he was a young man, would be eager to 
uh, meet any uh, disciple who had known like the apostles, mm-hmm. and he would ask them, "What did uh, Peter say? And what did John say? And all the because there were traditions about Jesus that." came right from these apostles. So these were the eyewitnesses. These were the ones who had been preaching the gospel, the ministers of the word. But they would be handing on what Jesus actually said and did. And so uh, this is kind of a a revolution in gospel studies compared with maybe the situation going back 100 years ago. We think of the German scholar like Bultmann. Mm -hmm. They thought maybe the early Christians were just creating stories about Jesus in order to get you to believe in him. But rather, the, the Christians were very concerned about passing on the historical traditions of what Jesus did. And so the eyewitnesses were a control on the tradition. Uh, they would say, no, yes, this is what actually happened. And that's why it's important that Luke mentions the eyewitnesses, because he's saying those are the authorities that stand behind what I'm about to set out here. And that's why we find the Gospels being written uh, toward that latter part of the first century, precisely when those eyewitnesses are starting to pass away. And so the, their witness is being put, set into writing uh, for the future generations. And so there's a great concern uh, for history among the early church. And so that's why we can have great confidence that when we read the Gospels, we are reading uh, what Jesus actually said and did. And, and in fact, the Second Vatican Council explained that about the Gospels. It affirmed without hesitation the historicity of the Gospels. You know, I, I love the way the Gospel of Luke begins with those four verses at the beginning, setting it up as uh, his concern for history, and then he jumps right into it. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah in the white. You know, he jumps right, <laughs> he immediately, he tells us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with the historical issues here, and then he sets it right up. Uh, I just love the way he does that. Let's talk about those infancy narratives uh, at the beginnings. A lot of people find it hard to believe that um, uh, that Luke would be able to access the kind of witness that could give him accurate information about uh, the prophecies surrounding Jesus and, well, what we call the virginal conception of Jesus. Tell us a little bit about the infancy sure. narratives and your confidence in them. Yes, yes. So the infancy narratives, of course, are among the most beautiful and most beloved passages in Scripture, and also perhaps some of the, the most well-known. Uh, Luke's infancy narrative, of course, is what we meditate on during uh, the Christmas season, and of course, uh, each of the joyful mysteries of the Rosary are also rooted in events uh, uh, recounted by Luke in his infancy narrative, and so they're very familiar passages. And Luke tells us it gives us clues along the way as to who his sources are. So, for example, uh, Mary, a few times uh, in the infancy narrative, Luke tells us that she pondered all of these things in her heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, when after the uh, shepherds come and see the infant Jesus in chapter 2, verse 19, Mary kept all these things, reflecting on them in her heart. And Luke repeats that later on as well. So those are clues that Mary ultimately is the source for Luke's infancy narrative. And another clue about that is that Mary is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, as being with the Apostles in the upper room 
uh, right before Pentecost. And so that's a link that, you see, Mary is not only present at the beginning of the mystery of Jesus on earth, but also the mystery, at the beginning of the mystery of the church on earth. And so either directly or through other family members, uh, Mary's uh, story would have been passed on to the early Christians, and then and Luke would have received it that way. And so uh, there are, a, despite all the skeptics, there are a number of contemporary scholars, Catholic and non-Catholic as well, who would affirm, as I do, that, that Mary stands as the source behind the infancy narrative. So we've got this prologue where he talks about his concern for history, he goes over his method a little bit. He jumps right into it with the uh, announcement of the birth of Jesus, and he roots it again in history. And uh, after the birth of Jesus, we quickly get to Jesus' preparation for public ministry. And so again, there's a, a clear narrative flow here. And um, why was he concerned to show preparation for Jesus' public ministry? I think that's, I mean, we've already got this idea um, that, you know, he is the promised one, he's the uh, anointed one. And yet, Luke wants to show that even Jesus himself was prepared for public ministry. Yes, and so uh, it's actually very beautiful uh, because in the infancy narrative, we're introduced to the story of the birth of Jesus, but we're also told about the birth of John the Baptist. Only Luke's gospel tells us about the circumstances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. And so right away, there's a parallelism that is set up in Luke's gospel between John the Baptist and Jesus. But of course, it's not like these are two people on the same uh, level. Uh, it's clear from the infancy narrative that John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. Mm-hmm. John is called the prophet of the Lord, but Jesus is called, uh, I'm sorry, the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So Jesus is greater than John. So then you fast forward uh, about 30 years uh, in chapter 3, and that's when John's ministry is underway by the Jordan River, and so you see that then uh, John is indeed carrying out the commission given to him already uh, by the angel to his father. He's preparing the way for Jesus, and so you you learn about John's baptism in John in Luke chapter three, and then you see Jesus's baptism as well, and and from that then he begins his his public ministry. And so Luke, by having the infancy narrative with John the Baptist, and then the story of John the Baptist and the preparation for Jesus' ministry, uh, makes a, a, a good connection there that we don't uh, have as, as clearly in the other Gospels. And um, and we, we also have, uh, it moves there to a section of the temptation of Jesus, where which, which the other Gospels do refer to, but this is this again strikes I think a lot of us as it's like wow why did he have to go through these temptations before his uh, he might say his coming out uh, event <laughs> um, right. at his baptism why was it necessary for him to pass through this period of temptation yes and so all of these things both the the scene of the baptism and also the temptation uh, help to identify Jesus with all of us so indeed at Jesus's baptism. Uh, uh, Luke is very uh, clear that Jesus is being baptized along with many other people. The verse, chapter 321, says, After all the people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. And so the idea here is that Jesus uh, has 
solidarity with human beings mm-hmm. as he's undergoing that same experience as them. And so the, the, the same point holds for the temptation narrative, that Jesus experienced temptation, and that's something that we all experience as well. And so Jesus is in solidarity with us, even in temptation. Now, of course, Jesus did not give in to temptation. Jesus right. is without sin. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a, a message there that because Jesus uh, endured temptation that uh, and overcame it, then when we're faced with temptation, we can overcome it uh, as well. Uh, but also, the, the individual temptations are suited for the person of Jesus, and they, uh, they're, in a sense, at least some of the temptations uh, are related to things that Jesus will later reveal. And so, for example, the, one of the temptations, the devil asked Jesus to worship him, but at the end of the story, at the end of the gospel, we see that the disciples are worshiping Jesus, because uh, that's an affirmation of Jesus' divinity, because yep. only, only uh, the Lord God shall you worship. Right. And, and indeed, uh, the disciples are worshiping Jesus, and that's a way to affirm that, that Jesus is indeed the Lord, that he is divine. My guest is uh, Father Pablo Gadenz. He is the author of an outstanding commentary on the Gospel of Luke, published just this year. It's part of the Catholic Commentary and Sacred Scripture series that we've discussed before. Today being the feast day of St. Luke the Evangelist, I thought it would be a good idea for us to, again, get a taste of the Gospel uh, through uh, Father Pablo's work. We're going to continue. We've got another segment coming up, and we'll get into some of the... Uh, well, there's a dramatic... There's a real drama here in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll start it out as Jesus announces uh, his public ministry, but there's more coming. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Pablo Gadenz. He is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology at Seton Hall and the author of a, a new commentary on the Gospel of Luke, published just this year in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scriptures series, published by Baker Academic. And we are looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're just beginning. We're trying to just get uh, our feet wet in the Gospel and hopefully encourage you to read through the Gospel. It's always a wonderful exercise to read through a Gospel in one setting, one sitting, because you get a little bit more the sen- the storyline. We are now, we've gone through the temptation of Jesus, and he then, the devil leaves him, it's, it reads this way, um, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him, that is from Jesus, for a time. And then Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread through the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. So Jesus is getting a good beginning here. I mean, people like him. Um, he's obviously uh, sh- showing spiritual authority. How does he take us to the rejection at Nazareth? And uh, this is uh, the beginning of conflict for him with his own people. Yes. So Luke's gospel, unlike Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke's gospel highlights the encounter of Jesus uh, in the synagogue in Nazareth. So 
Matthew, Mark tell us that Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth and that he did not receive a good reception there, but only Luke tells us what Jesus actually said and what yeah. he was doing. And it's a, a very dramatic passage because he stands up and reads from the prophet Isaiah, a passage from Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, etc. And then Jesus says, Today the scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And at the beginning, people are excited about what he's saying, but at the, at the end of uh, his uh, preaching, they turn against him and they try to drive him out of town and try to hurl him down off the cliff. Uh, and, but then he passes uh, through their midst and goes away. So, uh, in a sense, here we have the, the whole gospel story in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. We have the identification of who Jesus is, what his mission is, but also what his destiny will be in terms of uh, his being put to death. So, in terms of his identity, that passage from uh, Isaiah that Jesus reads, says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So Jesus is the anointed one. Well, that's what the word Messiah means. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is also another word meaning Messiah, anointed one. And so he's identified as the Messiah, as the one for whom they were waiting uh, for so long. His mission is also clarified in this passage, because the mission of the Messiah, as indicated in the passage that Jesus reads from Isaiah, is to proclaim liberty to captives. Well, that's a loaded phrase uh, in Luke's Gospel. It's a loaded phrase in Isaiah that Jesus is reading, because that points back to this other passage in Leviticus, which is where the Jubilee year was announced. Mm-hmm. Every 50 yep. years, the, the Jewish people had the Jubilee year where they would proclaim liberty. So if you were in slavery because of your debts, every 50 years you would be freed. So Jesus is now coming to proclaim liberty of a new kind, with this new Jubilee. And indeed, the tradition of Jubilee years in the Church goes back to what Jesus does here in Nazareth. Except, Jesus is proclaiming a new kind of liberty. And interestingly, the Greek word for liberty, aphesis, is also the same word for forgiveness. And so, Jesus' mission is being announced here, and then later we'll see it acted out when he's forgiving people's sins. Mm. And then finally, Jesus' destiny is also announced here because his rejection uh, foreshadows his future uh, suffering and death. Why was this quickly quick reversal of fortune here? He, he's well-received, and then in a fairly short encounter, at least it reads that way in the text, they turn on him. What did he do wrong? <laughs> right, right. It seemed like things were going so well. <laughs> right. So in, the, in the verses, uh, where he continues uh, explaining to them, he makes reference to two prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Except the, the events in the lives of Elijah and Elisha that Jesus points out are events in which uh, those prophets interacted with Gentiles. Uh, with non-Jews. And so, for example, he mentions how Elijah went to a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside the land of Israel, and how Elisha had healed um, uh, a leper, but he was a Syrian, not an Israelite. And this is also foreshadowing the mission of the church to go not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. This is what Luke is going to write about in the Acts of the Apostles, where he begins in, in Jerusalem with the 
early apostles in Jerusalem, but then it ends in Rome, and we have the story of the mission to the Gentiles. And so we, we have everything being foreshadowed here about Jesus' mission. And so it's because Jesus referred to the, the Gentiles as being the ones blessed by God that the people uh, became indignant and they turned against him. Uh, because he seemed to be saying that the blessing wasn't only theirs, but it was going to be extended to these other people. Uh, and so that's why they turned against him. Uh, this might get overly technical, but I'm just curious. Even, I mean, in the Old Testament, there is a sense of universal mission that, you know, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of, the, um, because of what uh, God had done among the Hebrews. And I'm, I'm wondering... Were they in the first century? Were Palestinian religious authorities no longer concerned about any universal mission for Israel? I think this is uh, something that that uh, varied among the different Jewish groups. And so, uh, when we think of the expectations of the Jewish people at the time, like their expectation for the Messiah, certainly they were expecting also then the Messiah to restore the Davidic kingdom mm-hmm. uh, and therefore to overthrow these Gentile oppressors. Remember, they had been oppressed not only by the Romans at the time of Jesus, but by the Greeks before them and right. by the Persians before them and by the Babylonians, etc. So you had these four like Gentile uh, kingdoms, and so that experience of of being oppressed by foreign powers perhaps had something to 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 do with with their attitude toward uh, non-Israelites. Uh, but there's also, but you do see a, a variety of opinions among Jews of the time. And so, for example, in the writings of Qumran, you you do have a sense of that there's going to uh, be a conflict against these Gentile uh, rulers, and it's only by overthrowing them. Uh, whereas in other uh, Jewish writings, you have a sense more of how the, the Gentiles will will be converted, and, and in that way to fulfill that promise uh, to Abraham that the, that the blessing will come upon you know all the children, all the nations, uh, all the nations will be blessed uh, through him. And so there's I think some tension uh, among different Jewish groups during that first century, mm-hmm. uh, in part as a result of their own experience of of Gentile oppression. Sure, sure. Uh, we've got about five minutes left, and uh, again, we've just started the narrative, but I wanted to show this tremendous drama here, which continues throughout the entire Gospel, and really into the Book of Acts as well. But let's touch on some of the themes. You've already mentioned um, that this uh, theme of Jubilee, which is tied to the theme of forgiveness and mercy. Mercy, uh, given again Pope Francis's emphasis, is probably good for us to bring up here. Um, would you say mercy is, in fact, a a self-conscious theme for Luke. Uh, yes, I would say that, and uh, as a result, others have said that the Gospel of Luke is the Gospel of mercy. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. So in in Luke, in chapter 6, we have the Sermon on the Plain, the so-called Sermon on the Plain. This is where we hear some of the teaching that's similar to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in that Sermon on the Plain, uh, Jesus uh, says uh, about mercy, he says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And then we might be reminded of a phrase in Matthew's Gospel which says, be perfect right, just as right. your Heavenly Father is perfect. And both of those verses are going back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus 19, which said, uh, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So uh, 
that the question that that Old Testament phrase uh, raises is, what does it mean to be holy like God is holy? So in a sense, when Jesus says, be merciful as your Father is merciful, he's interpreting what holiness is in terms that, that uh, holiness means that you will also be merciful. And indeed, that is the portrait that we get, for example, in that passage in Exodus where the God, where God announced uh, to Moses that, that the Lord, the Lord, you know, merciful and gracious, you know, the mercy extends for many generations. Uh, and so there's this uh, idea that holiness is closely associated with mercy here in Luke's Gospel. Jesus not only teaches that here in the Sermon on the Plain, but then he'll also demonstrate that uh, later by having mercy uh, on sinners, uh, restoring them to, uh, to God's grace through forgiveness, and he'll also illustrate mercy through his parables. And so we think, for example, of some of the famous parables in Luke, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is about mercy, uh, you know, the one who treated him with mercy, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. Uh, so that's what it means to be merciful, to imitate the Good Samaritan. And then uh, how does it, what does it mean to be merciful as God is merciful? Well, we, that's illustrated for us in Luke by the parable of the prodigal son. The father in the, in the parable is merciful to the son when he finally returns uh, and asks for forgiveness. And that's how, how God is merciful uh, with us when we turn from our sin and ask for forgiveness. Um, this, this idea of Jesus being filled with compassion... Uh, or in the case of the father, for instance, in the parable of the prodigal son, um, being yes. filled with compassion. I mean, this is a major emphasis, isn't it, in Jesus' revelation of who the father is? That's right. Yeah, there's a, a, like a special word there that only occurs three times in the gospel that means to be moved with compassion. So the father in the parable representing God is moved with compassion on sinners, and uh, the Good Samaritan in the parable is moved with compassion. And then the, the, God, the verb is used one, a third time, namely it, when Jesus raises from the dead the son of the widow at Nain. And he's also moved with compassion. And so this is a, a, uh, an important aspect of the portrait of Jesus and also then the, the portrait of God through the parable uh, that's given to us through the Gospel of Luke. And then with the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're instructed to go and do likewise, that we too, when we see a situation of need, should be moved with compassion and try to help as the Good Samaritan did. You know, as a scholar, or really as a careful reader, any careful reader would want to take note of those um, recurring phrases like that uh, and note where they show up, because that itself is a tip that the author is trying to make a point, isn't it? Yes, and that's precisely the kind of connection you can make when you sit down and read the whole gospel, uh, because you see the connections with these recurring phrases, uh, you know, throughout the gospel. Um, Another example would be uh, when Luke repeatedly tells us that Jesus was praying, like at the baptism, he was praying. Uh, Before choosing the apostles, he prayed all night. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he was praying. So what's the message that's that you get from that, well, that we should be praying as well. Yes. So Jesus teaches us about prayer, not only by teaching us prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, which he does in Luke 11, but he also teaches us by his example. And that's something that you can pick up by reading through the whole gospel and seeing these recurring phrases, whether it's regarding mercy, compassion, or, or prayer, this other example. Uh, 
So it's a very beautiful gospel that we ought to spend time reading. Father, thank you so much for being with me today and for your work and your labor here on the Gospel Luke, the commentary. It's wonderful and uh, great making your acquaintance. We'll talk again, Lord willing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Father Pablo Gadens, it's the Gospel of Luke, Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture.